What is up and welcome back to Zen Business, the show that studies health and mindfulness habits that ultra high performers use to reach the top of their industry and their craft. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, Managing Director at K&J Growth Hackers and founder of five digital companies. We've grown these companies to great levels and created an exciting and fulfilling life for our team members, but the truth is it was much more challenging than we ever could have imagined. All right, now let's jump in. All right, what is up? And welcome back to Zen Business. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, and today I have Adam Stinson with me. He's my co-founder and COO at K&J Growth Hackers, and he's really the brains behind most of the business. He does all the campaign implementation. And Oreo is a team cheerleader. Yeah, our mascot here. Folks, what we want to talk about today is the common mistakes that people make in marketing because K&J Growth Hackers has launched over 200 campaigns to date. We've been around about five years and we've seen all kinds of businesses from e-commerce to tech, mobile apps, SaaS, sweepstakes businesses, you name it. Automation firms, high ticket, low ticket, all kinds of stuff. And so in that process, every time we run a campaign, we A-B test 500 different creative and audience combinations. So a lot of data and learnings comes out of that. And we also are quite picky with who we bring on as clients because as a performance agency, if we have skin in the game, if we get a hand in the upside, we also get a hand in the downside. So we have to make sure the clients are very qualified as in they bring their side to the table if we're gonna you know, release 10 or 15 of our people to go build a campaign for them. And of course, work on a performance basis, yeah. which puts a lot of skin in the game. So Adam, you know, you're the one who tells me, don't bring that client on. What is the most common reason you tell me not to bring a client on? Um, the, the most common reason I would personally reject a client is I would say if their campaign, well, one, it has something to do with what our strengths are, what our current strengths are as a service business and whether or not like we're stretching ourselves outside of our bounds by taking on a client. That's really important because we have the capacity to do that, stretch ourselves outside of the bounds. But then again, you got to think about what your operational infrastructure is and how you're going to leverage that to deliver certain campaigns. So if they don't fit inside the operational infrastructure, it's a little bit harder of, uh, of an ask for me to jump in there and expect the same kind of deliver quality and timelines, which in turn means on a performance basis, I'm a little more hesitant to jump on those campaigns because there are certain campaigns that uh, or certain clients that obviously were built to service those clients, in which case I'm going to feel really excited about having a performance agreement with that. And if that's not the case, then uh, it's a little tougher. Um, on the actual client side, I mean, obviously, if they haven't done any marketing and sales before, if they're like launching to the marketplace for the first time, it's just a huge risk for us to uh, take on. If they are a solopreneur, or have a very light team and are self-funded, that's a hard one too. So tell me if I'm getting this right. So one, you want your capabilities to match their problem. What do they need help with? Yeah. Two, we don't want to resource people against a campaign that we're not sure we can get results for, AKA deliver value to the client. Three, it has to be a campaign that excites you. Did I kind of gather those right? Yeah, I, I would say there needs to be some level of validation in the marketplace for that client. Was the one okay. That, that I so like number four would be validation, which in our world means data, right? Data. Yeah. 
So what kind of data are you looking for when you're evaluating how well a campaign is going to do, how well a company is going to do? I mean, the most ideal data that I could find inside of a company is that even though they've had relatively mediocre marketing, they've still been profitable. Because that means I can come in, do really good marketing and accelerate the shit out of their growth, essentially. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I'm going to hit you with a contrasting viewpoint and say, I want a company that has ugly marketing, but beautiful product, right? Something that works super well, maybe kind of unrefined and a little bit clunky, yeah. but is in a, has a lot of product development behind it rather than a company that is going to market with just a concept, maybe they're pre-launch yeah. and they're just marketing something that's not even manufactured or developed yet. That's well said. That, that I think is actually more on point with what I meant than maybe what I said. Like they, if they have product market fit, then their marketing can be relatively mediocre and we would still see that data and go, this is an opportunity. Uh, ugly, mediocre, same. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, let's just say that somebody wants to hire you to launch their viral app campaign. Yeah. What are the common red flags you see in founders when you meet with them? Founders, CEOs, CMOs, yeah. start, startup tech totally. guys. Um, I would say vagaries of understanding what your app provides. So, you know, if, if your self-description of your app has the word everything in it, you're on the wrong path, you know? And a lot of people will say everything, even though that they're really uh, niching themselves down in some sense. So like I, I talked to a kid the other day who um, it wants the everything of tennis app. So like, obviously that's niched to tennis, but you know, he's thinking like training videos, like uh, recovery and strength resources, tennis court times and that kind of stuff. And it was really hard, but I had to tell him like, you can pick one of those things and just do that. Because that's, that's all you can afford to do. Every time you add a new, I do this thing, it costs money. And that's all you can afford to market because you can't have any clarity um, to someone looking at your marketing. You won't have any clarity if you're not extremely specific with what result you're providing to that person. So why do you think it's, well, let me backtrack a little bit. Yeah. A lot of times people come and they say, my app does... A, B, C, D, and E. And I'm the only app that offers all five of these in one app. Why is it so hard for people to say, no, I'm going to slash D through E and I'm only going to work on A? Why, why, why do people stray away from that yeah. so much? Um, I, I think a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is, I would say, just like you said in the example, I'm the only one that offers all five. Right. So they think that adding all of those features is providing them with differentiation. And so they don't see themselves as differentiated or have any specific advantage unless they can do all five of those as opposed to just picking one. And I think the other reason is like, I mean, just and, you know, we've been servicing clients for a long time. And I think service people probably feel this very much, too. But if you're not absolutely confident in your self and ability to deliver a result, you're going to do everything that you can to over deliver. Right. So it's kind of this concept of like, yeah, this is what I wanted to provide, but I don't know if that's going to be enough. So I better provide five more things as well. So what I'm hearing is that it comes from insecurity. It comes from insecurity. So when you feel like you're not pro providing enough value to the user, you want to 
add on a bonus. Yeah. And so I think in the service world, we see that too, right? Like if we have a client who's pissed off about something, you know, they might bug us until we give them something for free. Yeah. When what's in question is the core piece of value that we're offering is not delivering value. Right. So we should just be focused on getting the value that they paid for initially. Yeah. Instead of adding on a bunch of bonuses and creating distractions. Right. Because every time you launch a new marketing campaign or strategy, you got to do new ad copy and new graphics and new videos and tracking and analytics and all that stuff. You got to start from scratch. And that adds to the complexity of management in a big way. Right. So like if you were just doing one campaign, but that's not enough. So instead of doubling down on that one campaign and making improvements all along the way, you add another vertical through which you're going to manage. You know, now you have to manage optimizations of both campaigns. And that might mean, you know, five to six more levels of complexity inside of the management as opposed to it's like assembly line right thinking essentially yeah like am i going to build if if i'm building microphones am i going to build a whole separate assembly line for headphones right in a month just because one of my suppliers says hey i want headphones now yeah or you fucked up my microphone order give me some headphones right exactly and i i I was going to ask you why is it that people are why are we as humans so inclined to just add on and go try to compensate when, but I think I've answered my own question because it's, people don't have clarity. They don't understand that me adding on a TikTok campaign is going to be a huge distraction. It's not just gonna be, oh, we got lucky and went viral on TikTok. Yeah. You're gonna launch a video, especially branded content. I mean. <laughs> It falls flat compared to user-generated content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oftentimes you launch a new campaign and then both campaigns are failing at that point. When if you had just invested those resources in campaign A, the original proven strategy, yeah, then you would have gotten the result. And I think nowadays because of all the tech platforms and analytics, we can actually know. I mean, at least in K&J, you set up per hour, per project, per task time tracking. Yeah and ClickUp, which is an amazing platform if you guys haven't used it. So you can see how all of your employees are performing at a project level, task level, timelines, level of effort, You know how much time they're investing in things. And I think you have solved the problem in terms of seeing what the actual impact is of distraction. Mm-hmm. And so now that you know, okay, if we throw in a campaign because we're feeling nice and want to you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. please somebody on a call, you're going to create 20 hours of work for your team this week or 30 or 40 hours of work Yeah. when you may only have 40 hours of, of staff resources allocated to that campaign for that week. So right. now you've got 80 hours. You're doing double the work with the same amount of staff and people aren't excited about it because it's a change in the middle of the roadmap. So talk to me a little bit about um, some of the pitfalls you've seen from falling for those distractions, because I don't think this is just an internal K and J thing with services or any agency for that matter. This is a business, it's, yeah, and it's everybody for industry sure. and worldwide thing. Yeah, I, I think the first one is a lot of task switching. So that kind of feels like a small one, but um, when you're switching back and forth between tasks all all the time, like you have a certain kind of lag time, especially if if you don't necessarily know how to get that next task done. I think your proclivity to procrastinate, like if you don't know, if you don't know how to write an article and you have to write an article, like how long are you going to fucking procrastinate on that? Or like write an essay, like back yeah. in school, you know, like a long time. And the reality is if you just got started and like 
worked your way through it, it probably wouldn't take that long, but it's really just that not knowing what's going on that's causing all the fogginess and confusion. And so for that, and that's going to happen all the time with um, like relatively new employees in the space because everything is new for them. So every time you throw something at them that is not um, something that they've already practiced, like you're just, it's like throwing them in the deep end a few times a week. Um, and so that can be hard to deal with on, on one side. Um, the, the other side, or I guess the way to counteract that in some sense is to have really strong processes and training around specific types of workflows and task work. But as we learn, creating processes and training around a simple workflow is uh, a very time intensive and complicated task in itself, right? Because every time like, uh, and you've, you experience this all the time, when you sell something that the team is not trained to do, who does it fall back on? Yeah. And you're looking at them. Right, exactly. Um, and in a lot of cases, well, in most cases, well, I'm assuming the reason you do that is because it is quicker, faster, uh, more cost efficient and time efficient for you to just knock that out in two weeks than it is to put employees on it for like six weeks, right? Like five or six employees on it, get, trying to get the job done for six weeks. Um, and, but, you know, how much of that can you sustain? Then you're just doing that all the time. It's yeah. faster for me to do it. It's faster for me to do it. Yeah. And I, I think these learnings, every company ultimately is powered by humans. Yeah. If you have tech and you have a ton of leverage, you get 10 human worth of work out of every, you know, one that you have on the team, you're still prone to these same things. Yeah. If you tell the development team to build a new feature that is not vital to the end, the dream outcome of our user, people can easily just throw items on the roadmap like, hey, I want to be able to share this on Instagram. Yeah. When that might not be vital to, let's just say, calling an Uber car. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm pretty sure that sharing on Facebook and Instagram is not a top priority for them. But everyone seems to think, oh, we need sharing functionality so we can go viral and stuff like that. And th those are the kind of distractions that I think everyone can fall victim to. Yeah. A lot of the, the pitfalls that I see with most people's marketing is that they're just distracted, right? They're just following trends that yep. like, let's just say, oh, people, my friend's going viral on TikTok. I want to give it a try. Yep. And there's no real basis for that claim, let alone some testing data and so on. So now, now talk to me about the, the issue you see with most creatives on, on paid media. And then, then we can talk yeah, about totally. organic. Well, um, I, I think the issue with most creatives on paid media is maybe the fundamental assumption that it needs to be creative. Um, that might kind of sound odd. It does need to be creative, but it needs to be procedural first, right? Your copywriting, how you do your ads, like first it's procedure and then you can get creative within those boundaries. But, you know, people have been doing copywriting and advertising for a really long time. We basically already know what works, right? Like it's kind of that, that simple in some sense. The people who are well-studied on the procedures of copywriting like are going to do a great job. And then, yeah, maybe the best 1% are the people who do the procedures really well and then also do the procedures in a very new and unique way. Um, what are those procedures? Um, in, some, in, in the very basic sense, it's get somebody's attention and establish that they are within your target audience ideally in the same phrase. Right. So like a headline that gets the person that you want to read this article to read that article. And, you know, whether that's a LinkedIn post or an ad or anything like that. 
um, a, a piece of copy that tells the, the person that you want to read the copy to read the next sentence of the copy. And then um, tell the person on the second sentence why they should read the third sentence, on the third sentence why they should read the fourth sentence, and then on the fifth sentence why they should click this button and go to my website, or whatever it is. I mean, it's the same process if you're writing a book, an article, an advertisement, a movie, right? It's just kind of the creative process in some sense. It's, it's, you might think it's creative, but is it really creative if people don't watch it, right? Are you a good artist if you can't sell your art? Well put. Yeah. So... Let's just say me as a brand owner want, want to run a like a viral style campaign or something that's really catchy yeah. or completely breaks the, the mold and you know disrupts the, the scrolling cycle. Uh, how much value do you think it adds to either do stunts or take creative risks? And like, uh, just answer that first. Yeah. Um, I, I think it does add a lot of value, especially if they're a lot and low cost stunts. Like one, one of the things I think people are missing and including me and you in some sense is like everybody has access, every, everybody owns a 24 seven news channel in their pocket. And so like do as many stunts as you can think of. Like as soon as you think of one, just do it, right? You don't even have to really filter like what's the best stunt, just do them all. And some of them will land. Um, and so I think that's definitely, I mean, from the people in our industry who are doing really well on their own content, that's what I see the most. So like the, our clients don't like, not our clients, but clients, clientele, marketing clientele does not always like the crazy stuff. But if you look at the actual people doing the marketing and how they do their own marketing, it's all the crazy stuff. And that's in some sense because you mean like in-house teams. Yeah. You know, like, like kale and his marketing experimentation, you and your marketing experimentation. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the name drop chamber media, Travis chambers, you know, like he's, he's painting himself to look like the devil and like just to attract one potential client and post it on LinkedIn or whatever and call out that client by name. And nobody, the client didn't pay him to do that. He was just doing it to get their attention, you know, and like has his staff like running around the office naked, like for the sake of the commercial or whatever. Um, so he's obviously done a lot of marketing. And did like, he actually do that? Something like that, you know, <laughs> like not, it's I, I saw he did do a like very satanic commercial um, where him and a couple of other people in his office were like literally body painted red with like horns and hair spray painted red and stuff. And it looked like, like a, uh, a death metal, like music, uh, video kind of thing. And it was just, and he was saying like, we just did this to get your guys' attention. Like we hope you hire us to make your ads. And it like had a specific company that he was calling out. So like that guy does only data-driven marketing. And but yeah, he, his creative looks well, crazy and eye-catching. Right. And so what, it, what does it tell you when the guy who's looking at all of the ad data and making decisions based off that is doing crazy stuff? Running around like the office naked. Running around the office naked. It means like... Shit they, sells. Yeah. That it works, you know? So I think um, one way that... You know, listeners can apply some of these learnings today. Is and I took this from Alex Hormozzi, which yeah. I'm sure some of you guys know. He's an amazing marketer and speaker, and so on. And he uses Twitter as a scratch board. Yep. And every idea he comes up with, whether it's 
hey, I'm naked. You know, I got no pants on on this call right now. He tweets that out, right? Yeah. And then whatever idea comes to mind, he tweets it out. And if it lands, then and then yeah, yeah. If something gets picked up, and he's got a big enough audience where if you know some the right person retweets it, it'll go viral. Yeah. Right. So he uses that as a scratch board. And the way we look at this from a marketing perspective is what was the click-through rate? Yep. How many people engaged with this post? Yeah. And that's the, the easiest metric you can gauge creative quality on is how many people click this. Or if your goal, of course, is for them to comment, you know, how many comments did you get or something like that. Yeah. But the, the simple way to do it, if you don't have the means to, you know, go run 100 different ad tests and creative variations like we do on our ads, you can just... Test it with organic, put yeah. it on LinkedIn, put it on Twitter, you know, make it a, like you said, a low cost stunt. Writing one line, posting it on Twitter costs you nothing, but it might get you amazing data on what captures your audience's attention. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I uh, I don't love the, I don't I don't think necessarily appropriate to give the advice like, oh yeah, just go viral and that'll solve your problems. But like, it, you know, it might, you know, yeah. <laughs> it might. Yeah, and so I, I kind of wanted to talk about that, like the allure of viral. Yeah. Uh, I have my own opinions about things that go viral, but if a client asks you to do a viral campaign, what do you tell them? Gosh, that's a good question. I, in some sense, uh, what is viral is a question that I have because that might mean different things for different people, you know? Um, like if you're, if in your example of like tweeting, if most of your tweets get, you know, three, four, five likes, and then one gets 40, you should pay attention to that, right? That's like viral in some sense. Um, but I don't know if a client says go viral, did they mean like they want the night next uh, ALS ice bucket challenge? Like that, I mean, I, I guess the most appropriate thing to tell them is, okay, look, we can do viral campaigns, but like you got to understand that the success rate is really low. But if it is successful, then like, yeah, that's awesome. But uh, I'm, I'm cool with doing viral campaigns for a client as long as there's mutual understanding that like in some sense what you're asking for is a miracle. And if you want a miracle or like a Hail Mary, then, you know, really we got to do 40 of them and hope that one is an actual home run. Again, you still have to A-B test yeah. before yeah. you can really turn the lights on. Definitely. My thoughts on this are that one, anything viral is generally a phenomena, an idea, a message, it's not a product. When was the last time you saw like millions of people buying one product? It's it's a story, right? Exactly, yeah. so if you want performance marketing, if you want results in ROI, viral is not the mechanism. Yeah. That is what I would consider a brand stunt and that actually falls into the PR bucket. Yeah. When we say viral marketing at K&J, we mean hockey stick growth, right? You're investing $1, you're making 10 yeah. or $100 back. You're making a million off of the campaign you invest 50K in per, per month, meaning you get 5 million impressions and a million in sales. That is viral to me yeah. because it is, uh, what do you call it? it it's non-relative growth. It's parabolic, right? It's exponential, exponential not linear. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like the, the returns are outsized compared to the investment. So that's one issue I have with the whole idea of virality. Two, a lot of motherfuckers are faking it, right? Yeah. You can pay... You can go on Thunderclap, you can go on all kinds of different platforms, and you can get engagement groups to give you a ton of engagement, retweets, you know, comments, whatever, and you can create this sense of virality. And yeah. you know what? There's really nothing wrong with that in my mind because the whole idea is to be perceived as popular so yeah. that people buy your product. So it's really not that wrong. So why not just uh, find some mechanism to engineer that virality rather than 
throw a Hail Mary, like you said. Yeah. So when it comes to uh, products, you're going to be selling an idea or a phenomena. You're not going to be selling a product. Yeah. When it comes to actual virality and audience engagement, most of it is either engineered, manipulated, or fake. Or if it's real, it's you know once in a long ass time. But the third thing is, if you're looking at app virality, I consider app virality when you're getting downloads for free. So people searching yeah. the app store or browsing, and that is just a relative ratio. PayPal gets 30% of its downloads from organic. organic. Yeah. And that means that our marketing is creating enough buzz where people are talking about it, sharing it with their friends. So that means 30% of our marketing budget is saved. Yeah. Uh, in this case, you know, that's 30,000 bucks or whatever. That's, that's a good uh, amount of money. Um, so when it comes to app virality, real virality is building a mechanism that has outsized returns. Fake virality is having something that um, looks viral but didn't actually deliver results. Yeah. And stuff that looks viral, like let's just say, you know, this app is going viral because you know, saves five minutes a day, you know, with this journaling technique or whatever it is. Uh, generally, when we look at the data in Apps Flyer or in the you know in-app platforms like Firebase, users who come with an incentive, I want to win something, this is free, whatever. They're generally low quality users. Yeah. So when your day one retention rate on a good app is somewhere between 20 and 50%. You know, 20 to 50% of the people come back and use the app the next day. On viral uh, campaigns, like let's just say giveaways and stuff like that, you can get 10,000 downloads in a matter of minutes, yeah. but your retention rate is literally like 1%. It's trash, yeah, it's not very good. Because you just gotta think about the incentives. People are coming for something free. They're not yeah. coming to give you their money. Right, I mean, if you can, if you, I think the, the maybe a little bit more nuanced case is if you can line up your the incentive you're offering for taking an action with what the benefit of getting that app in the first place is, right? So like, I mean, with PayPal, we did a vacation one and I think that's pretty aligned with like the uh, yeah, language around learning. the world giveaway. Around yeah. the world giveaway. Um, not that obviously people are still, like anybody is down to win a vacation. So there is um, a little bit of, of uh, mismatch there. I think um, Kale did a good one for his blog. Yeah, but before you go on, here's the thing about the PayPal campaign. In order uh, to get premium entries, so you get yeah. 10 entries, not one, you get 10 entries. You get one entry for downloading the app, but you get 10 entries for doing a free trial to premium. Yeah. And when you sign up for premium after seven days, you pay. Yeah. So there's a clear connective tissue to the purchase. Yeah. And that's the only reason I approve that campaign. Yeah, I, I agree. Like there has to be a connective uh, tissue for sure. And that goes also for just random viral uh, tweets or whatever, like you have to have that connective tissue there. And so it might be a story, but it has to be a story that people cannot tell that story without mentioning your business, right? So like that's- uh, Or without endorsing or promoting your product. like. Hey, I just, look, this company is giving away 10 bucks if you sign up now, and plus their app is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Jonah Berger has the book uh, Contagious, all about like what makes things go viral. And being wrapped up in a narrative, I mean, like I said, it's the narrative that goes viral, not the product, first of all. And then people have to, when they share that narrative, like not be able to share the narrative without mentioning the business, mentioning the product, mentioning the benefit. I think there was an example of a like online gambling site sent a guy 
to the Olympics with like the gambling t-shirt on and had him go interrupt the uh, diving competition and like climb up the diving board and jump off, you know? And it went like super viral, but it brought no traffic to the online gambling because that stunt didn't have anything to do with their actual product. Yeah, and it also, the user wasn't involved in a way where they have any skin in the game. Yeah. Like, all the user has to do is watch that and be entertained by it, but it doesn't mean they're actually going to, there's no reason for them to go to the website. Yeah, no reason. There might yeah. be curiosity, but come on, they go to a corporate website, they're going to be like, okay. You you know, it was a really, really good one, a completely opposite example in some sense. Maybe not that opposite, but it, did, you, did you watch the Super Bowl this past year? Yeah, I did. Yeah. You know the floating QR code? That ad? Who was that? Coin, Coinbase? Yeah, yeah, Coinbase. So they just, for anybody's context who hasn't heard this, what they did was they put a QR code. You guys remember that old like direct TV or old, you know, VHL, whatever box that would slide around the screen and bounce off the yeah. edges, you know? So they just did that in a QR code and left it there for 20 seconds. And so many people were just like, let's see what the fuck this is. And they, they went on and it was Coinbase. And then not only was it Coinbase. Before you go on, I bet you they had a connecting step, like sign up and get $20 in your Bitcoin account. Five or something. Yeah. There you go. Five dollars. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. So there's a reason for people to move forward. So, yeah. So there's, there's a reason for people to move forward. But I mean, that was innovative on like a lot of levels. I mean, the first one being it is a new form of television direct response marketing that they just invented it. Right before it's all one eight hundred call now. Yeah. That's the only director from Yeah, and so now they just made it so you can turn, you can give a TV ad a direct call to action in a in a brand new way. So I think it was genius on a lot of levels. Makes sense. Yeah. So distraction, uh, enamor with viral things and yeah. such. Uh, not enough data. Tell me one more thing that you think a lot of people, a lot of marketers, founders, business people are making a mistake about in terms of uh, social media and how much content they publish, what yeah. kind of content. What, where, where is the big pitfall when it comes to creating some uh, brand authority and authorship and, and leader leadership? And- I think a big one you kind of touched on it is... I mean, we're all guilty of this in some sense, but if you want like a consistent marketing channel, part of what you have to do is hit your numbers consistently, right? So if if you want ads to work, you got to do enough ads, you know, like if it's $20 worth of ads, like, sorry, buddy, you're not going to get very far with that. If you want your cold calling to work, you got to do a lot of them. If you want your uh, Instagram page to grow, you got to post a lot. You want your LinkedIn connections to grow, you got to post a lot. You got to make a lot of connection requests. You got to get in a lot of conversations. So definitely just giving up too early. Like you said, it's exponential regardless of how you're marketing. The growth is generally exponential. So even if your marketing is not profitable, you can do free marketing. And as long as you keep doing enough of it, you will eventually make that marketing profitable. But of course, if you're advertising and paying for marketing, then you might not have the runway to do that because, you know, you're going to run out of money. So, yeah, I mean, definitely just hitting your numbers is is a big part of uh, being successful in any endeavor and doing it consistently. So the the last thing I want to talk about in in relation to publishing regularly and getting your content out there is like... (laughs) Why can't I grow, right? Everyone's asking that question. Instagram's not giving me reach. I have 20,000 followers and, you know, I'm getting 1,000 views or whatever. Everyone knows they're not getting the reach that they quote unquote deserve. So how do you grow these days? 
like just from from an impression perspective like how do you get the word out more yeah let's um, just say yeah. uh, creating a bigger audience getting more engagement from them maybe getting business out of it yeah and creating some real authority not having to doctor any of the numbers yeah well i think a big part of it is definitely you got to know how to play the tech giant game that they're playing like you got to figure out if you're going to be able to play in Facebook's system and do what they want you to do to grow or if you need to go somewhere else just maybe it fits better with how you you know can create content personally i like writing like longer stuff so short video clips are not necessarily my bread and butter so like google seo is going to be more my place the next part of that is like you got to take that into own data as much as I think the big thing right now is like growing on TikTok like oh you need to be on TikTok the platform's just so new blah 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 like yeah but TikTok's algorithm as I understand it is like you're you're not it's it's not a interest based algorithm it's a content based algorithm so like if I follow you it doesn't I mean I will see more of your content because I followed you but um it's still, I'm being fed just content that is like the content that I stick around and watch for. Trending. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. Yeah. So ultimately, I mean, I think you got to find a way to be higher touch and less reliant on the social media platforms and like use the social media platforms for their virality. And as soon as you can get people off the platform and onto something you control. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah. there's a quote that I love and it's grow slow. Grow slow. That's a good one. The... The concept of blogging, I'm still a huge fan of blogging, even though I never hear anyone talk about it anymore. Why? You might grow one subscriber per week or two subscribers per week, yeah. but at least that's like a real subscriber. Yeah. Right? Those people are actually there for the for the ethic of your content. And so I think that's one part of it is uh, it's not about the volume. A anybody can have 100,000 or 200,000 followers these days. Everyone yeah. knows how to manipulate that at this point, whether yeah. it's through shout outs or giveaways or whatever. That's... It's not that impressive. Let me just put it that way. Especially here in LA for somebody to have 100,000 followers. Honestly, yeah. it's table stakes in most cases. Um, but what I thought was interesting was I heard a, the old benchmark of how much content you need to put out uh, before was 10 pieces per week. And then I heard uh, posts every other day. So three pieces per week during the week. Um, and now, most recently, and I thought Gary Vee was a little crazy for saying this early on, but... It went from 10 pieces a week to 10 pieces per day. Per day. Yeah. And then I, th I think historically we've been emotionally punished by the algorithm when we post too often and don't get as much engagement. But that's a, a dip before our rise, right? So the more you're posting, that means the more your audience is seeing your stuff. Even if you're getting more impressions per post, yeah. you're getting out in front of them more. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, you're taking over the airwaves. So all of their thinking is now going to your 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 voice and your authority is going to be woven into their thinking on a more regular basis. Yeah. So you'll actually have a, a much better connection with people if every time they open your feed, your content's there. Right. If they open up TikTok, you're there. If they open up Stories, you're there. If they open up LinkedIn, you're there. And think of how much more immersed if, if people like your content and they're following you. Think of how much more immersed they'll be yeah. after getting. Hey, here's how to growth hack an app. Here's how to you know analyze your Facebook data and here's how to stay motivated and you know avoid anxiety yeah if, they, if they're getting the whole kit and caboodle as they go across platforms that's a huge opportunity to uh to really uh, just have great authority and influence 
yeah. over your, your audience. And then if people don't like your content, it's better that they unfollow you because you don't want to disengage follower anyway. Definitely. Um, and I mean, I, I think that aligns with a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. One being, well, I would say don't, don't mistake the individual data with the aggregate data. So like just because your individual posts are performing less, 40% of 100 is better than 40% of 10 or 70% of 10. Right, so if you're 10xing how much you're posting, yeah, and a little Grant Cardone shout out, you're 10xing how much you're posting, and yeah, your percentage engagement per post might plummet, but you might still be reaching six times what you were reaching when you're only posting once a day. Correct. So it's, yeah. it still makes a lot of sense, and you give yourself that many more opportunities to potentially go viral, which will happen on you know I don't know four percent of your total posts. You're just going to get, I mean. The Pareto's law says that 10% of your your um, posts are going to get 50% of your engagement, traffic, or whatever in general. Um, and I think that's right. But an interesting kind of note on that, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation of people like really needing to over-deliver. I don't think that necessarily but in like product features is what we were talking about before. I think because you, you said something um, about, you know, if you – capture someone's attention and they are hooked on you essentially now and they see you on Twitter, they see you on Instagram and they're just, every time they open their phone to their social media they see one of your posts. I think what you're forced to do is kind of step outside of your niche and talk about like, yeah, well, I'm Johnny, the marketing and app growth guy, but you know, I can't, I just can't do six hours a day of marketing and app growth. So I got to talk about my cold baths, my workout program, my diet, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I see that happen. A lot. You know? And, um, it's kind of like expanding into other verticals, but like, Hey, at the same time, if you're the, the, the time to break the rule of distraction is when you own your vertical and now that's the only way that you can expand. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Alex Hormozzi, he used to only do how to get more customers, how to charge them more, and how yeah. to have them stick around longer. Now he puts out how to hire, how to fire, how to... Have a know. good marriage. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> marriage, yeah. and now his wife's producing content. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting example, and he's still growing. He's still growing. So I, I feel like he's got rubber on the road, he's got momentum, and he yeah. has that privilege, but he earned it. Yeah. Um, Definitely. So just a, a few final closing remarks. If you're if you're self-conscious about your engagement, just turn off your likes. You know, don't show sure. don't show like counts. Put out more content, right? Put Look at your content. analytics at the end of the week, a week where you post every single day and a week yeah. where you post once a week and look at the difference in the numbers. Yeah. You know, being somebody who's used to posting like once a month, my, my numbers were always down. Yeah. Now that I'm posting all the time, it's like, whoa, you're up like 445%. <laughs> all the time. So yeah. it, it is crazy how much a little consistency will do for you. And I, I just think that we as a people, specifically millennials and Gen Zs who grew up in this, had a big attachment to how much feedback, how much positive feedback am I getting? And now we're realizing as a group that that's not that important. I yeah. mean, it's cool if you have it, but like if you're getting 150 likes on a reel, it's really not that taboo these days. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it just depends what your goal is. You know, don't, I think it might be going to being distracted. Like if your goal is to make money, more followers doesn't equal dollars, right? So work it all the way to what your actual goal is. And you might even not, you, you just might not yeah. need a big following. That was another thing that I kind of realized was what kind of company do I run? A yeah. marketing company. Who do I want to do business with? Marketing clients. So what kind of content should I make? Marketing content, all of the fitness and mindset and health stuff. That's really just hobby. 
yeah. at the end of the day. And honestly, gym selfies and you know uh, fitness content, that stuff actually gets more engagement. For sure. But it gets more engagement from people who are irrelevant to me. Yeah. Whether it's thirst traps or whatever, that that's never gonna do anything for me career-wise. Yeah. I think Neil Patel said, he, he said all of his lifestyle content performs better, but where he gets clients is the niche and the specialized yeah. technical content. Right. So take what you're good at, publish on it, and the right people will notice. Because think about it, there might not be a hundred clients in my audience. There might only be ten. Yeah. So of course I'm not going to get more than ten engagements on that post, but the one or two might be, you know, my client yeah. at TikTok or you know UMG or yeah, something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't be fooled by your numbers. Yeah, that's a good. And I, I love the fact that you can hide likes now. Uh, it's like okay, now we've taken that out of the equation. It's not a popularity yeah. contest. Just just post. Just put more content. Yeah, just out. have fun with it too. I mean, I, I guess that's what I'll say in closing. Just have fun with it. Yeah. As my coach said, I had the coach of um, Dave Asprey from Former Copy. I remember him. Yeah, Amy, and she said, "If you're not having fun, what's the fucking point?" Yeah. Right. Like, if you're going to be creating content and all this time into it, have fucking fun with it. Yeah. Put a neon light in your office. Do whatever it is that makes you happy and totally. you know, makes you have fun with it. So yeah. With that, Adam, thanks for coming on the show. I think this is uh, this is your second my second second time on the Zen Business Podcast. I appreciate you having me once again, and uh, I hope that I can come come back uh, for years to come. Yeah, you're just gonna have to pay the thousand dollar initiation fee. Yeah, yeah. Plus four hundred fifty dollars a month of membership. To be on the Zen Business Council. Yeah, the Zen yeah. Business Exclusive Members Council. So right, right we appreciate right, right. your payment to be on this podcast and to reach my audience. Hashtag sponsor, hashtag ad, and thank you guys so much for watching.